Welcome to episode 185 of the In Squash podcast, and today we're delighted to have back Rodney Martin. He was here for 182, and uh, what an gr- incredible episode, what an incredible time for me as a podcaster to have a legend and a hero like that, and uh, I got caught up in the moment. We didn't cover everything that we could have. It was a great episode, but here on episode 185, it's absolutely amazing. I know you're going to enjoy this. We uh, take deep dives on so many great topics. Everything from the British under-23s, which was a milestone event for him. Uh, we talk about the uh, the three British Open finals where he played Jahangir in the final. Uh, we take a deep dive on that one. Uh, we speak to uh, his time at the uh, Australian Institute and the impact that the great Jeff Hunt had on his game and his thoughts on Jeff and uh, also on Chris Robertson as well. Uh, we talk about deception in the game. We talk about ghosting. We talk about JP's deception and and uh, what he his thoughts are on that because we all know uh, JP had uh, I think uh, Rodney was one of JP's uh, heroes growing up Uh, we talked to that we speak to uh, other things with respect to Rodney's thoughts on coaching and so much more this is a great episode you're going to enjoy it Rodney Martin episode 185 first of all again uh, 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 thanks again so much for doing this Uh, we ran out of time I think last time Uh, there's so much so much ground to cover uh, with you, and you wouldn't believe this, but the, on my 100th episode, I had uh, Jonathan Power on. Okay, my, my yeah, hero, my Canadian hero, and uh, yeah. even though he's younger than me, um, but uh, not since that episode has there been so much uh, uh, excitement over uh, one of my episodes. You, you, the the number of hits I got the day that I dropped your episode was amazing. You, may, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, it went through. Not, well, well. One thing we did find out, Jerry, that um, there was people out there that wasn't weren't really interested in your how, your heavy feet or your golf. That's what I heard. Oh yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Less of me and more of you, I think, was the yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's, that's good. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was good. I mean, uh, uh, I generally I I don't get a lot of negative uh, feedback, which I didn't actually. I got ninety five percent positive. Uh, response on that last episode but just a couple of guys told me i was going yeah but but it's one of those things that you know everyone appreciates you know that you that you're out there doing something like this because you know it is different in the squash world that people aren't really um especially ex-players that 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 are sort of lost from the game sometimes and they never they never get the um the accolades or the uh tension that they should um you know i'm involved in the game and so i'm around and see things that happen but there's plenty of players that aren't around and and just seem to be forgotten about and squash doesn't do a very good job at um you know acknowledging the those types of players and things like that so something like this is a forum that obviously can people can hear and see what they're doing and understand what they've done over the years and it's a good thing you know absolutely yeah i i had one that i was speaking to renee melwalili uh on the podcast a while ago that was her first ever podcast world number one yeah I mean, yeah, that, that well, that's what I mean. I mean, that's what I mean. It's, well, it does. It tells you a bit about the game itself and how, you know, like there's so much more could be done with promoting ex-champions and, and uh, ex-players that have done, you know, given so much to the game and are prepared to do a lot ba- and to give back to the game in a lot of ways. If, if they were encouraged to do it in the right way, they would do it. And, uh, you know, it's just not a good thing that you're just losing these, you know, legends or, you know, great players from different countries. Um, you know, unless they're involved in some sort of coaching 
uh, role, they're very, very, very rarely seen or heard of, you know, and um, it's just it's just a poor thing that squash doesn't do very well in that in that regard. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, well, it's so uh, again, uh, appreciate you coming back uh, for for episode number two uh, with you. Um, now, uh, I think uh, what I'd like to do is just sort of take a look back at uh, some, you know, some of your the younger playing the, the your your playing days, maybe the British Opens. Uh, but first, before we go there, uh, you mentioned uh, you told me that uh, you had a special uh, memory of the the uh, under twenty three British. Uh, championships and uh, yeah, obviously had a special uh, meaning to you. Can you uh, uh, take us in there and, and uh, how that played out for you? Well, it really was one of yeah, you know, <clears throat> yeah, the biggest one of the biggest events, um, especially for you know juniors trying to transition into the senior ranks, playing on tour. Um, it was a it's an event that um, you know every top player in the under twenty three age groups you know sort of went to and tried to compete in. Um, from around the world. Um, I suppose it's a little bit like the British junior now um, that, you know, all the young players are trying to compete at that and they gauge how good they are in a sense of what level they are. Do they want to take it up professionally? Are they, are they at that level? Um, so it's sort of, you know, coming out of juniors, there wasn't a lot of, apart from the world junior, there wasn't like a world junior circuit that you could go and play and things like that. So, you know, players from other countries, if you made the world junior, which happened every two years, you get to go away and compete at that international level. But outside that, there was very rarely uh, you, you went away or did any travel. You played within your own country, um, especially come from Australia. You know, Australia's a long way from anywhere, really. So you're not doing a lot of travel um, to try and, you know, to get competition. So, um yeah, for me, it was like a huge event that I, you know, heard about this and, you know, entered the tournament, um, you know, with not, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, I, I think I can compete well, obviously, because I've just done, I've done well in the World Juniors, I've played some tournaments in Australia, um, you know, beaten some top 10 players um, before I went on tour. So, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, I can compete, obviously, but to go there and to sort of go in there, it, it, my first real trip away and then win the British, the first British under 23 I did um, was, you know, I suppose put me on the map as far as the the squash media and the public are concerned that, um, like, as I said, there wasn't much international um, events for juniors or, you know, transitioning from juniors to seniors unless you're on tour. So, um, you know, not a lot of people probably had heard of me by that, that at that point. Um, so it, it was, it was really a breakthrough. Were, were you seated there, me. Rodney? Were you seated in the draw at all? Um, actually, I can't remember, but I don't think okay. I was seated. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was seated at you know something, but I wasn't seated too high, um, and definitely wasn't expected to win. Um, so um, yeah, to go through and win that tournament, and then um, you know to back it up again the following year and win the second time, um, you know, just establish myself because I mean, one of the big things about that event not only was it great for you know, you to, to see what level you are on, on of all the up and coming young players that are trying to make it to, to break through on tour. It was um, not only that you got a you got a wild card into the British Open that, right, right. that of that year. So I mean, you know, as a young player, you know, going on tour for the first time and to get a chance to actually get in the the main draw and to get get a, a wild card spot in that. Yeah, so it was a it was a big thing to win win the British under twenty three at that time. Um, not only for your ranking because of the points and all that sort of stuff, but just the the prestige of it, the you know what it gave to you, and then you know let let you get into the first round of the British Open to to see how you went there. So um, it, was, it was a big thing, and um, yeah, something that really catapulted my you know, sort of 
uh, my name out there in front of a lot of people. I got a lot of media coverage from that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was a huge thing to start my career off, basically. So what, uh, uh, just to stay there, because this is really good stuff, um, you know, when you went and played in that event, obviously you said you'd played in the, you know, the World Juniors and British and, and the, uh, the Australian uh, events that you'd done well in. But would you, were there any players in particular that when you, when you showed up at that event, you said, uh, yeah. oh, yeah, he, he's going to be, uh, he, you know, he's good or he's interesting uh, that, at that time? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I had to play um, Sahil Quasar, um, and he was, you know, obviously played uh, in the in the World Junior before me against Chris Dittmar and people like that. So I know the level, and he was playing on tour at the time. So I know the level that he's playing at. Um, <clears throat> and there's, you know, a lot of English guys that have had, you know, a bit of a reputation. Um, and, uh, you know, to come up against him and then to play play him, uh, him and then do well and win that tournament. So there's 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 names out there, but, it's funny because, you know, as a, as a player that's isolated from Australia, you know, you're not seeing the international side of things. So mm. you're really going there with your, with not a real lot of knowledge about a lot of players. So you, you're sort of just taking every player as they come and really trying to work out how to play that person and, and compete against them, either, you know, watching them play the day before or something or even just the day you're walking on the court with them and mm. working out how you're how you going to win. Is that, that, that might be a good thing. I mean, not knowing, you know, what this guy plays like you just go out and play your game instead of well of yeah, I mean, it makes you it makes you think about it. obviously you got to try and work out those things while the game's happening and you know how you're going to compete against this guy you sure you want to play your own game but sometimes you you know you need to look at what's going on with your opponent to 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 work out you know how you're going to beat this person rather than just focusing on what you're doing yourself um but you know <clears throat> a lot of the times you know when probably when i was younger I probably did just think about, you know, the way I played and thinking the best form of attack, the best form of defense for me was attack. <laughs> so, you know, usually when <laughs> yeah. I was, usually when I was down, uh, like in the final, I think I was down two love the second year against Derek Jahan Khan. And, uh, oh, yeah. I, I just decided to, right, I'm, I'm, I need to start attacking. And I started just absolutely going flat out to try and attack the ball, finish the rallies and turn the game around and a one in five. So, I mean, that was sort of my mentality towards, um, you know, trying to change things around um, was more so than being defensive. Uh, so, you know, that worked and it was probably, you know, the way I played throughout my whole career, really. You know, back then there was a lot of, um, you know, Pakistani players that were obviously following, trying to follow in the footsteps of Jahangir and Jangsha and stuff. So, Zarek was one of them. He played at a pretty high tempo, hit the, you know, tried to hit the ball like, um, you know, like, more like Hitty probably. Um, you know, trying to hit, really hit the ball hard and kill the ball short and uh, a lot of hard, low kill shots all the time. Um, mm -hmm. Didn't volley a lot, in a sense, but um, was always you know, real aggressive with his hitting um, and was a good mover And uh, until he, you know, did his knee in an accident you know, on court and um, couldn't move as well after that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah he, was a, he was a tough player to play. Yeah. Just coming out against someone that played like that, you know, the way the Pakistanis played at that point um, was a bit of a shock to the system as well, so... Well, that's sort of sound. I mean, you you obviously had a bit more method to the madness, but you you were a, a, an extreme attacking player as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I, th I think I've just that was the way I played as a you know growing up. Um, there was no real thought in a sense behind it. It was just the way you know, as a kid, you want to go and enjoy the game. Yeah. So you know, for me, it's like experimenting, playing shots, um, learning how to you know l learning different angles and you know what you're going to do, learning deception. Um, yeah, because no one really taught me how to, you know, hold the ball or to do that. It was my father really was the one that taught me technique. 
but it was really just, you know, experimenting and doing things myself and learning how to do those things, you know, to try and become more of an effective player um, just through trial and error from myself, really, rather than anyone teaching me that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Right on. Uh, let's stay over there in, in Britain, if you don't mm -hmm. mind, uh, uh, Rodney. You, you got to the British Open, uh, obviously, everyone knows this, three times playing Jahangir in the final three times. A ser uh, an incredible accomplishment in and of itself. Obviously, uh, you would have wanted to have won uh, one of those, but uh, that must have been an, an incredible experience. Tell us about the, those matches and uh, having to play uh, with uh, what you called the, the teleball. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the probably the most disappointing things um, in my career, to be honest, um, not to win one of those matches. Um, not only because, obviously, it's a British Open, and at that point in, the, in, in, in squash, the British Open was a pinnacle of, you know, winning that major tournament in the year. It was even more important than the World Open at that stage. Um, probably because the history behind, you know, with Jeff winning, I mean, Jonah before that, then Jeff winning, you know, eight, British Opens in a row and then, you know, Jahanga trying to beat that record. And unfortunately, um, with Jeff Hunt being my coach at the AIS, um, you know, I didn't stop that run and uh, stop him beating Jeff's record, which is uh, disappointing. Um, and it probably is one of the biggest regrets of my career not to win, you know, that tournament um, mm. at some stage. Uh, I, think, I think I had, you know, good opportunities to do that. But, um, you know, one of the things about, like you said, you bring up the telly ball, I mean, not many people know about the circumstances behind that and how, and how difficult it was to play with that ball. Um, we never played with it very often at all on tour. The British Open was one tournament we did play with it, but only in the final. So you play with it, you know, you get, you get 20 minutes before your final to go down and have a hit with it, and then you've got to play the match with it. And it's a completely different uh, ball. It's, if, you, if you see a golf ball and it's got, you know, those dimples of like a golf ball, it's got reflect silver reflectors in the in the squash ball yes, so um the ball's not only heavier um it's it's it flies off the front wall faster you can't boast very well with it just because of the it's almost like the wind resistance or the or the or what it does to the you know the ball when it hits the wall because of the indentations in it you couldn't get the angle right <clears throat> so mm -hmm. you 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 refrain from boasting much with the ball um and it just suited, you know, Jahanga's game more than mine, I think. Um, you know, he was a power player, hit the ball hard all the time. So with that ball being heavier and faster off the front wall and really not getting a chance to, you know, practice or get used to that speed, um, it, you know, it put me at a disadvantage, I think, you know, going into each of those matches playing with that ball. Um, so, yeah, it was difficult. Um, I, th I think, you know, I think back to some of those matches and, you know, I'd like to think that I would have won one of those matches if we played with a normal ball, you know, and uh, normal conditions, um, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of a, a regret or, you know, the disappointing thing to my career in that sense. But what can you do about it? It's for the, both both players have to play with it. Um, obviously, he adapted better than me. Um, and, you know, it just didn't suit my attacking, you know, my attacking style as much as it suited his. Um, so, yeah, it was it was disappointing in the end, but, Still, you know, I walk away from that sort of stuff and feel grateful that I had a chance to play in front of, you know, probably some of the biggest crowds ever at, at, in squash. Um, you know, playing in the Wembley Conference Centre in front of, you know, 3,000 people. Um, you know, like it's unbelievable. And, and the following that Jahanga had was just the atmosphere was just electric all the time. Um, you know, all my supporters, you know, wanting me to beat him and, you know, and 
so it's it's it, it was a really good time to play uh, squash in, in 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 that era um, because of the following that he had, and you know playing in Wembley, such an iconic stadium, and and the way it made you feel when you were there, it just made you feel special about playing. And uh, you know, so I, I think it was you know from my point of view, I look back at that that, that tournament and. You know, I think it was a mistake for the for the tournament to leave Wembley. You know, it went then it went down to Leaks and went down to Wales and things like that. Obviously, they did a great job trying to host the British Open and things like that. But just for the the the, the way the tournament was and the iconic, you know, the atmosphere and the the stadium at Wembley, I think it would have been better suited to stay there and and have that that side like a Wimbledon of of you know of the tennis. Basically, it's um it needs to be like that of squash. I thought so. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, when you, if on you know on uh, under normal circumstances, obviously you you've played well against Jahangir, beaten him uh, a couple of times, like you mentioned uh, uh, previously. Where what were your you know on a good day? Uh, how how would you you know what what part of your game do you think you uh, would would allow you to uh, overcome Jahangir's uh, incredible squash? Um, I sort of learned. Early on, and like I obviously being a shot player, I, I, I understood I, I understood what was difficult and not difficult to do with regard to hitting the ball and being accurate and trying to hit winners and things like that. And one of the things, the hardest things for me was to learn how to hit power shots when there's not much pace on the ball. So if someone's sort of pushing it around and lobbing it around, and you've got to create the power all the time. Mm-hmm. It's much more difficult to hit the ball accurately, and you know if you're doing that every single shot. So I sort of learnt that, well, I'm going to try and do that to him. I'm going to try and slow the tempo down and just push it up and down the wall and let him, he wants to keep hitting the ball hard. So I sort of learnt that, you know, by doing that, it gave me chances in, in you know, certain points where he wouldn't hit the ball that accurately. The ball would keep the side wall or come out a little bit further than he wanted to just because he's trying to, you know, hit the ball as hard as he can all the time. And that's difficult to do with little pace on the ball. So that was the first thing that sort of, you know, I learned, you know, to try and do against him. Um, and then the second thing was just, you know, like being dynamic onto the ball as much as I could, trying to, you know, delay the ball and and, and obviously be aggressive short, uh, making sure that I, you know, take advantage of the loose balls that he gives you because he doesn't give you too many loose balls to take advantage of. So um, you have to be really switched on um, when you're playing him. And it becomes... You know, I would find after the British Opens, it, it was okay. There was there was a physical aspect to it, but boy, it was the, the mental side of the things that really took me, you know, some days to get over it. And usually, I, nearly every time um, I finished the British Open, I got the flu, like you know wow. that the, that next week. So, I mean, my body sort of just was run down because yeah, it was at the end of the end of the season. You know, usually, you know, that was in April or whatever the British Open. So you'd play from January through to April, all the tournaments leading into that. So it was, a, it was yeah, one of those things that you just sort of thought, well, that's the end of the season and your body sort of shuts down. And <clears throat> so, yeah, so it was all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, but learning to play Jahanga, um, you know, was not only the, you know, the, the tactical st- side of things, but, you know, the mental side of things just to, to hang in there. And, yeah, you, you learned when, you, when I started playing him and, and, and I was lucky enough that um, when Ross Norman beat him in the uh, World Open final, um, I was the next person to beat him six months later or so. Um, and he went through another six or seven or eight months without getting beaten again. But then I played him in the New South Wales Open um, and in, in, in Sydney and I was down to love in the final and I ended up be- coming back and beating him. So 
look, and he was not in any like anywhere near the shape he was before that World Open or whatever. You could see that he, you know, he probably hadn't done a lot of work going into those events, thinking he's coming to Australia and playing someone like me, like he doesn't have to train that hard probably. But <laughs> yeah. I didn't care about that. Um, it yeah. was more about it was more about a young guy, you know, starting on tour having the chance to play someone like him and then being down to love, fighting back and, and, and getting the win, I mean, that just does a huge amount for your confidence to think that you've got the ability to beat anybody and you can play at that level against anybody, basically. So, um, so yeah, so all those things. And, and as I said, I learned the tactics about trying to beat him. Um, uh, was, you know, uh, was there a tell there? I mean, uh, I know in the last, uh, when we spoke last time, you spoke about, uh, you know, playing uh, Jancher and, and uh, how he – sort of his shoulders sank. I think, I think that, that was the expression you use and that, that was your, yeah, problem. no, I don't No, It wasn't really when you're playing him, it never was like that. Um, it, you know, I sort of, yeah, the, the wins that I had against him were, you know, sort of hard fought wins. Um, he never really sort of, you know, gave up or, or, you know, stopped trying. Um, so yeah, it's a different type of mentality playing him. Um, and yeah, he always seemed to, you know, he had that mentality, like, you, you know, you don't go unbeaten for what, five and a half years or whatever it is. If you don't have that mentality about hating, hating to lose. So, um, you know, so it's like, you know, he doesn't want to lose to anybody ever. So, um, yeah, I, I, as I said, I think it was just, um, the ability to, to maybe make him feel uncomfortable, you know, making him feel like he wasn't as accurate as he normally is because I'm not giving him much pace on the ball trying to volley, you know, cut the ball off, trying to keep him behind me. But again, trying to, I would say the attitude going on with someone like Jahanga from an early age was I didn't give him the respect that maybe other players did. I didn't care that he was Jahanga Khan. You know, I, I want to I win. So that, I think, I think that came across in the way I played and he could see my attitude towards that as well, you know, that I wouldn't be taking any crap from him on call and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. You know, there's things that have ha that happen in matches, and yeah, we've had some very aggressive matches and things like that. And you know, I mean, for one, I'll give you an example. I mean, it's not you know, the, the proudest moment of my squash career, but <laughs> it shows you the the um, you know the mentality that I had when it came to someone like him that I wasn't going to take any crap and let him dominate the circumstance. Basically, that where I was in the final, I was in the <coughs> semi or the final of um, the French Open, and. Um, he had this. He had this tactic against me to serve at my body or behind my body on my backhand when he was serving from the forehand to my backhand. So he would always serve at my body, but then he would always come across and stand on the tee. So he'd actually cut off half the court. So I'd have to play the ball where he wants me to play it all the time. Yeah. And I just and I stopped, asked for a let. He he, he served the ball again there. He st I stopped, asked for a let, and I said to him, I said, "You serve the ball there again, it's going up your ass." <laughs> okay. He served the ball there, and I just wound up, and I gave him one, and it went. And then you know, I, and then after that, then the serve changed, and he didn't move across so far. So um, it, it, it sort of it, it, it got the point across. Yeah. Um, I came off in between games, and Jeff Hunt says to me, you know, he was coaching me in between games. Oh, right, I don't think you should have done that. I'm going. Well, I said, Jeff, come on. I was like, you know, it, it's it is what it is in the heat of the battle, and you're doing something. So. Um, and trying to trying to not let someone dominate, you know, that they're doing it as a tactic. So it's like, well, you keep doing that tactic that you, you know, you're trying to take control of the tee and take control of the point from the very first shot. I'm not going to let that happen. <clears throat> yeah. So I think that showed, you know, things like that that happened in matches, I wasn't be, going to be prepared to 
let like, like Jahanga push me around or you know dominate the the mental side of it either. You know <clears throat> how uh, how was that how was that received by the officials? Um, not well, only your, uh, not only what they did, but also in terms of what Jahanga was doing. Did he say anything to either of you? No, and I mean obviously there was a there was a comment. I can't remember what the comment was, but you know I got the stroke because I was going towards the front wall. So um, <laughs> so I won the point. So that's all I was all, all that's all I was worried about. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, if he's going to serve it there, I mean, you want you should have the front wall to play, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's amazing stuff. Uh, now, now, Rodney, you uh, obviously you you spent a, a tremendous amount of time at the Australian Institute of Sport, and uh, we all know that that uh, uh, that's where so many Aussie greats uh, came from before you during your generation and after uh, you've been there as a player and uh, as a coach. So speak, uh, speak to the AIS, uh, uh, your experience there as a player and uh, then in, uh, as a coach. Yeah. Well, I mean, I went to the world junior in, um, in 1984 and um, did well. I lost to Chris Robinson in the semi-final. He went on to win the, the, the world junior <clears throat> and I have to play Jang Shikhan in the three and four playoff and I beat him in the three and four playoff, three love. And thinking to myself, you know, I'm at the level where I probably can go on tour. Um, David Lloyd played that event. He was number one seed. Chris Robinson beat him in the final and he was already on tour. I think he's already in the top 16 in the world at that point. Um, so I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm sort of at that level that I think I can go and compete and, and do well. Um, the AIS uh, just announced that year that they were going to have a squash unit and that was going to be based in Brisbane um, and the head coach is going to be Jeff Hunt So mm-hmm. and with Heather Mackay. So um, I sort of made a decision at that point to, go to, to, to apply for a scholarship and not go on tour full-time that year and and have a year at least a year's training under jeff and heather and and um just to ground myself in training because even though i you know i got ready for the world junior working with an unbelievable coach and mentor at the time which was his name was orb amos and uh you know i worked with him for a number of years just to try and get into the world junior team um to go to canada um and then but then you know after that you know i wanted to go to another level with my squash and you know, to do something full-time, AIS came along with uh, with the program, decided to do that, and it really was the best decision that I made um, in my career because it really did give me an opportunity to get, you know, get fit and get stronger and um, just know that in, the day-in, day-out of training and, and obviously training under Jeff, hearing about the legend that he was about doing the 400s and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff and so, you know, you, you, you can't help but think, you know, trying to, every day I went to training, I'm trying to impress him that I'm going to do, you know, every day I'm doing two extra 400s. So, I'm, you know, whatever, getting up to 20, 22 400s, um, doing them as fast and having less rest and all that sort of stuff. And then you're going, you know, the day, you know, when we first started was probably a little over training, to be honest. It was, you know, we were doing 400s three days a week. Um, after that, we'd, we'd do um, an hour of hitting at least in the morning after we did the 400s. Then we'd spend two hours, you know, hitting at night um, or in the afternoon doing match play every day sort of thing. And then sometimes we'd go for another run, you know, we'd get our shoes on after we finished the match play and go for like a max 30-minute run after that. So it was a lot of work and a lot of hours spent um, doing things. Um, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be thinking about doing that sort of, you know, work these days in a sense of the, the volume. But, um, 
you know, it, it still comes back to, uh, you know, getting fit and doing whatever you can. And, and the AIS for me was, was about that. And once I got to the point where uh, mentally I got you know, just so strong in the sense thinking about myself as being a fit player, I've always played shots. But, you know, for example, playing someone like Chris Robinson as a junior, he was always, you know, super fit and he would always just run me out. I never beat him as a junior. Um, lost to him at the World Junior. But then I went, went and trained at the AIS for a year, played him at the, uh, the Australian Open that, that year or the year after in the final and lost to him in that event in four. But then after that, um, through my whole career, I never lost to him ever again. Mm. And that was more about learning how to train properly, to get fit, have the confidence in my fitness. Um, you know, I thought, to my, I thought I could hit the ball better than he could. Um, so I thought, well, if I can get as fit as, you know, as him, and how can, how can I lose? If I, if I can hit the ball well and, do th- and, and, and get as fit as he is, then I'm, and, then I'm not going to lose to him, basically. So that was a good motivating, motivating force for me um, because, you know, he, he went on tour that year, um, started doing really well. So, yeah, I was trying to, you know, follow him on tour and, uh, you know, trying to do what he was doing, basically. And it was definitely a motivating factor each day training, thinking about, you know, someone like him on tour, and other players that I've competed against at the World Junior and seen results and stuff like that just motivated me more to train harder and to get out there and try and um, try and play. So, but you know, as I said, the, the AIS was an unbelievable environment. There was a lot of fun and uh, there was you know quite a bit of partying and things like that that we had because we had a good a big group. Probably yeah. I think there was something like sixteen or eighteen players there at that, any one time. I was lucky that it was. I was based in Brisbane and my family lived in Brisbane. So I didn't have to live at the, um, at the facility, uh, at the university, uh, where, where all the other players from interstate were based. And so it gave me a bit more of a break from the whole environment. I could go home, you know, after training and do things or be there with the group if I wanted to be. So I had this choice more than they did. Um, and I think that helped me you know, a bit with training and, you know, just, you know, being involved that way rather than being stuck in the, in the, um, in the dorms or whatever it is, uh, with all the athletes all the time, basically. So, yeah. um, so yeah, it was unbelievable. And, you know, all the, all the, all the players that came through in that time were all really, you know, good players. I mean, not and just the men, though, too. Uh, some great, oh, yeah. some great lady yeah. players of, uh, from yeah. Oz and all of them. Yeah. 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 All of them, you know, um, you know, it was, there was so many, there was so many, um, you know, my sister, obviously, you yeah. know, Sarah Fitzgerald, um, Daniel Drady. Um, um, there were so many other, you know, good players that came through. Even the ones that didn't get on tour and do very well, they were still unbelievably good players for Australian standard, which then, you know, built the standard up in Australia for all the young players coming through that play local tournaments and they'd have to compete against the, those sort of players. So um, it was just a, it was a great time for Australian squash um, back then and, the strength, the, the depth of it was, you know, it was unbelievable with the amount of players that we had on tour. Um, yeah. All the, all the, all the players in Australia that didn't, didn't go on tour, but were still really, really good, you know, tough players to play. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a really good time to be involved in squash. And then you, uh, you wound up uh, coaching there yourself. So uh, uh, a few yeah. years, uh, obviously a few years later, but uh, what was that experience like? And uh, who were, who were the players that were coming out of a, uh, who, who were there at that time that you were working with? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I, I hurt my hip, and then, um, you know, uh, I, I spoke to Jeff Hunt, and uh, he he sort of he, you know, convinced me to get involved with um, the AIS, even though 
while I was on tour, you know, people used to ask me what I want to do after, and I always said that I wanted to work at the AIS because I thought it was such a great environment to train and to be involved with with my experience. And I thought, and I've always wanted to be involved in coaching or in the game itself. So um, I always thought that that would be an, you know, an avenue that I'd like to go down when I finish playing. The only thing is, it happened a lot, a lot sooner than I wanted to. You know, sort mm-hmm. of I hurt my hip when I was twenty six, twenty seven. So basically, my career was over at that point. Um, so well, that's, that's um, quite I, young, isn't it? Uh, I didn't, re- I didn't realize that, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So I mean, I, I obviously, you know, I, I did well for probably five or six, seven years on tour, but outside that, yeah, I couldn't play anymore after after I injured my hip. Even though I tried to come back and play, you know, sort of I was out for six months, came back to try and play again, but I just wasn't, at the, you know, couldn't move and couldn't do the things that I wanted to, and it's very frustrating as a player knowing you used to beat people and then going out there losing the people that you know if you were 100 percent, just you could beat them you know um most days comfortably and then in the end you end up losing to these players it's it's pretty hard to take and you can't do that for too you can't do that for too long before you realize that you know you're not going to keep playing basically um but yeah working at the AIS with jeff was you know great experience um i learned a lot um, you know, not only probably as a player being there, just his work ethic, the way he wanted to help people all the time. And, you know, I have got a lot of stuff to say about Jeff in a sense of there's, there's, there's been over the years, there's been negative press about, you know, sometimes about Jeff saying that, that, that he wasn't a great coach at the AAS or whatever. I, I, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable to me that people have got anything to say like that about him. I mean, he is the, he is the, the, the person that would do anything for any player to try and do the best they possibly can. And he'll do anything to try and help that happen. Um, he's the most selfless and, you know, humble sort of person that I've ever met that's done what he's done in a game. And he, he, he's one of those people that you just don't come across too often in life. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've learned a lot from him. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people help me um, throughout my career, uh, especially when I went to England, first of all, Mike Johnson at Cavisham Squash Club, Mike Walton as my manager, but lots of people just at the club at Cavisham that made everyone feel welcome when we were there. Um, so I've sort of, you know, I've sort of brought that to my coaching as well, that I've tried to give back to a lot of people that have tried to make it on tour. You know, when I'm, um, I, I was involved with the AIS and then, you know, I, I got an opportunity to come to America. So I started doing some stuff in America here, um, which then created a, a, a base for the Aussie players from the AIS. I was still employed to work with the AIS, but then, but, the players would come across to America. They would um, stay with me, um, you know, things like that. So you're giving back a lot of stuff to the players for no real monetary gain. It's about just trying to help them because I know how much people helped me when I was on tour. So yeah. um, all that sort of stuff, you know, I tried to, to look at and think about and, and, and sort of give back to the game um, that just like people have helped me to get to, to what I had to do in squash basically. So um, um, with coaching, um, you know, I've tried to you know, implement the things that I think um, technically and tactically that I think work with players. Um, and obviously, every player is differently different, and uh, you look at every player different. It's it's looking at um, their strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, I think we touched on a bit, you know, last podcast and one of the articles that I just uh, that I've just done with um, squash player is, you know, that you yeah you know, you're looking at what what is needed from any particular player to try and bring the most out of them to play at the level they want to. And these young guys and girls coming through the AIS, well, their goal is to get on tour and to play at the highest level, play for their country, play world championships and whatever else. So, I mean, you're looking at ways of trying to um, 
to improve their game. And it's funny how people see when you start working on things and you know the foundation's not there. So the foundation of being a great player, you have to be able to drive the ball well, you have to be able to volley well, you have to hit good length all the time, and you have to understand some sort of basic tactics about how you're not going to open the court up and things like that. So when you go through that process with young players, they can often feel like you're, you're, um, you're sort of taking some of the flair away from them uh, and, 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 and making them play a more attritional type game. But that has to happen at some point. You have to get that through to them and you have to start working on those basic foundations for them to come out the other side of it to be the player they want to be and play all the shots they want to play but they're going to have a better foundation to, to work from. And, you know, you get a lot of people thinking, oh, you know, that you're taking all the flair or, you know, I've heard, have had, had comments about me, you know, in, in, in different circumstances saying you're taking the magic or the flair out of someone. And I just say, well, no, that's coaching. I said, you have to go through a process with a player and usually the players that come out the other side of it are the players that buy into the, do what you're doing. They have to believe it. They have to understand what you're trying to do with them. And once you get that belief and that uh, understanding from the player, you can achieve a hell of a lot, you know. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of good players, Stuart Boswell, Anthony Ricketts, Paul Price, did some work with David Palmer for a period of time at the RAS, um, Casey Brown, um, you know, Donna Urquhart. Um, you know, there's been like countless players, you know, throughout the years, nearly every player, Cameron Pilly. You know, obviously Ryan Kelly, who I worked with for 16 years, um, you know, through AIS and then in America, Zach Alexander. Um, they're all, you know, everybody, you know, that, that, that's come through the AIS or come through Australian squash. I've had some involvement with probably uh, that have been on tour um, over the last sort of 15, you know, 20 years. Um, you know, you know, I, for instance, I give them, um, you know, when they've come across to try and start their life on tour. Um you know, I've, I usually um, house them, I give them, a, give them um, accommodation at my place in America here, and I, and I don't charge them for those sorts of things. It's, I usually give them a year's free rent to, to try and establish themselves on tour. Um, so, again, it's all, all those yeah. things like that that people don't see behind the scenes that go on with a coach. And um, the, coaching isn't just about the hour you spend on court. It's, it's the relationships you have with the players you work with the amount of hours you spend doing things outside of, you know, the, the time on court, you know, knowing their personalities, you know, how to talk to them, what to do, um, how they react to different circumstances. And you get all that by just being involved in their life, basically. And um, I think the best coaches over the years have had that sort of relationship with their players. You yeah. know, you look at, you know, you look at, um, you know, Malcolm Wilstrop, you look at, um, you know, Neil Harvey with yeah. Peter Nicole, you look at, um, you know, Mike Way with Jonathan Power, you know, and, and all those sorts of, I mean, there's so many coaches around that have done great things with players, um, but it's not just about about them hitting a ball, you know, it's about a lot of other things that go on and and you spend a lot of time and effort that's not, you know, in, in monetary term, you don't get the rewards for it, um, but you want to see the players succeed, you know, so you're prepared to do whatever it takes to try and help those players and the best coaches in the world do that without even thinking about it. You know, they're just, that's part of their life. They understand what it takes to be a good player. They understand the time commitment it takes to develop players. And it isn't about just, you know, the hour or two you spend a day on court. It's all the other hours you spend doing other things, you know? So, um, yeah. so I learned that a lot you know, I, I, as a player, you know, and, and then as a coach, you've got to spend that time to do it. And otherwise you're not going to develop the players that, you know, in, in the way that you, you, you could or you should. 
Well, you just it was, that, that's really good stuff there, Rodney. You just meant you just listed off a, a, a whole bunch of names, uh, all the Aussie greats, and up into into the contemporary uh, times. But obviously, uh, we know that Australian squash is going through a bit of a, a lull at the, at the moment in terms of players at the top level. I mean, you know, knowing what you know and with your experience, uh, is it uh, is it simply just the, the matter of uh, you know squash is on a down? turn there, there uh, in terms of participation or is it, is it something uh, more than that and what is it if it is yeah look i think that there's been a lot of things that have gone wrong in australian squash over the years obviously you know people talk about the uh, the the um the real estate values and things like that obviously they're all all, all squash centers in australia were privately owned basically there was no real council facilities so um so it's all private people owning owning property and they can obviously get more money out of selling it for apartments or whatever they're going to build you know build on there rather than keeping it as a squash court so that's been you know one of the biggest problems but um outside you know but before all that that i think there was too too long and it was just there's too many people in, involved in the national body and other other areas of squash state state associations that have been involved for, in the game for way too long. They haven't moved moved with the times. They ha- they've 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 rested on their laurels because you know Australia developed player after player year mm. after year. Then all of a sudden, that hasn't happened because there was nothing being put forward, nothing being looked at as how is this going? How are we going to continue this to happen? It just it just almost stopped you know overnight to be honest. Mm. And yeah. um, you know, and it's it's one of those things where that that a lot of people haven't looked at things that way. You know, looking long term and what needs to happen before it happens. You know, and it's like, you know, what's the strategy for the next ten years? Um, and we should be looking at what could happen. You know, in five or ten years time, not oh, what's going to happen. You know, six months down the track, and it's too late to do anything. So, um, so I think that's been a big problem. I think there's you know there's nothing really set up for to take advantage of the great players that have come through from Australia. There's very few people that I know that are involved in coaching that were great players from Australia, apart from some players overseas, but in Australia itself, they didn't find a way of utilizing the the talent that we had in the playing and coaching ranks. Whereas growing up, I think that a lot of the ex players that were great players from Australia, like Ken Hisco, Jeff Hunt, Heather Mackay, you know, you look at all these different people that are around that they, they, actually went put back into the game and they were involved in the game of squash and coaching and doing things. So um, that was that was definitely lost at some point, you know, um, down down the line. Um, and there's so many great people that could have been involved in the sport, but they just haven't 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 had the opportunity because there's been nothing there, you know, for them to be a part of, basically. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, there's been some bad so, and then the people that have been involved in it sometimes have been, you know, the wrong people to take on, you know, head jobs, you know, at, at, you know, um, in in positions that, you know, should have been for someone that is more of a selfless type person. That, um, you know, it needs to be you know, like you need to put in a lot of hours that you're not paid for. Um, and if you're not prepared to do that kind of work, then it's not really a job that you should be putting your hand up for. <laughs> it's yeah, um. Yeah. You know, it's um, and but it's like that. I would say in any job, in any profession, if you, you know, if you're at the top of your profession and you're doing things, I'm sure you're not just you know clocking out the door when you walk out the office and you just forget yeah. about your job. You know what I mean? It's like no, when you go home, you're still doing your work, you're still doing other things, you're still looking after the players, you're still making sure that everything's you know there, everything's going the way you want it to to develop and things like that. So there's lots of things that didn't get done. I don't think by people that were involved, 
and um, that's and what we see now is the outcome. Um, I think there's a lot of people now getting involved in the game in Australia that um, see they want to you know trying to turn things around, and yeah, there's a lot there's there's, there's quite a bit happening in Australia in different areas. Um, so um, you know it is a positive sign, but because of what's happened you know in the last 10, 15 years, it is going to take a you know it's going to take a long time for us to develop some players you know to that highest level again, um, and you know they need to have the pathways to do that. Um, and that could be again, maybe using America or myself or someone like that to have a overseas base to let these players come and develop their games over the years. Because you know you're not going to do that development in Australia the way squash is in Australia at the moment. You're not going to get the development and exposure to the game if you want to be a world class player by staying in Australia. Yeah. So now that's interesting. Um, now, just to, I just wanted to ask you, I know I, I, I told you earlier I spoke with, uh, with JP uh, on my 100th episode here, and I, I remember during that podcast he, uh, he mentioned that you were one of the guys uh, as a junior when he was growing up, and he said this several times, not just on, on my podcast, but uh, that, that he mimicked your game when he was uh, kind of growing up. Did you, uh, I mean, obviously he was world champion, world number one. Uh, could you see anything in his game well, you know, yeah i mean obviously i mean you know obviously the way you know he wanted to be attacking he wanted to be deceptive um and the way in the way he went about it is um probably similar in some ways to me i mean you have to understand deception isn't about like when, when you're doing coaching and people say i you know i want to learn how to hold the ball or i want to be more deceptive and whatever that's a very difficult thing to teach because there's lots of aspects to it that people don't understand about about deception and a lot of it's about understanding your opponent's movement pattern and what what kind of shot you played and what kind of movement that your that the, your opponent's going to have off the ball. You know, if you get them stretched out and you read where the ball's going to go because you know you've hit a good shot, so you know, say, they're going to boast it up the front, you're already moving up the front to hit the ball. You know your opponent it has to make a commitment. Either they're going to cover the drop shot or they're going to stand back. And you've got that sense of understanding that that they've they've put you can see them pushing out of that back corner as fast as they can, probably overextending their movement. Mm. That's when you think about going short and then you push it long again and they've committed to that front position and it goes deep. So it's like there's lots of little things like that that you need to understand about to to be able to understand how to play good deception. Most people think about letting the ball drop, waiting. And that's deception. And that's just not effective deception at the highest level. It's, it right. needs to be hit harder, faster. And the way he went about it as well was he, you can see how explosive he was off the tee mm-hmm. onto the ball at the front. And I, look, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't as explosive as him, but whatever explosiveness that I had, I <laughs> tried to get onto the ball as fast and be in the best possible position I could with my feet, not too spread out making sure, you know, my, my, my posture was good, you know, with my chest up, making sure that, you know, bend, you know, getting my legs down low with my preparation, all that sort of stuff. So it looked like I was in a position that I could play three or four shots from. And that's, that's what made the decision, how, how just the, the movement onto the ball, quickly getting in position, understanding your player, your, your opponent's movement and what's happened to them in, in the sense of what your shots created, that gives you the position to say, well, even just the position my body gets in is a deceptive position, let alone what I'm going to try and do with the ball. So I think he was a bit like that as well. Um, and obviously, you know, he tried to, you know, use angles and, um, you know, and, 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 dis- and disrupt, you know, his opponent's movement, stop and start them a lot. 
um, and, and and made it difficult for, the, to, for anybody to play him, you know. So, but people don't give him credit, or me, or most other shot players, is that you know he was a good length hitter, and the ball would always be sitting down at the back. He'd give he'd give him time to you know to get in front to do the things he wanted to do with his deception because of his length hitting, and doesn't go away from any type of game you want to play. I mean, if you're going to do it at the highest level, you have to have that foundation like you go back to, and it's and it's about understanding the angles and, you know, hitting the ball cross-court and, you know, making sure the ball's sitting down and every cross-court you hit, even in the warm-up, you know, I'm trying to hit the ball so it bounces on the floor, hits the wall, sits down in the corner, and the guy can't hit it back to me. So he's got to right. boast it to me or he's got to hit it straight. So I'm just like, well, that's good. He can't hit the ball back to me again, you know. So it's just those sorts of, you know, just practice things you do all the time become automatic. And then all of a sudden you can just you play that way. And I think he played – you know, a lot like that with those sort of angles, getting onto the ball quick, getting his body in a position where he could do lots of things. <clears throat> he swung, you know, he, he, he hit the ball differently to try and create deception than I did. I did with a more, you know, fundamental type swing, if you like. He had a lot of different things he did with his grip and his, you know, his racket head and things like that. Um, more, more a bit like my brother, Brett, um, you know, was more, you know, unorthodox in that way. Um, but the fundamentals behind it was, you know, speed onto the ball, get up there, get in position quick. And he had a great understanding of what he did to his opponent before he was trying to use that deceptive position. So mm. that's what you need to understand about deception, not only about how early you need to hit it, the position your body needs to get in, but, you know, understanding your movement of your opponent. I'd like to camp right here just for a second. This is really good stuff. Uh, you mentioned uh, in the last podcast as well, you're talking about footwork and how, uh, in a general way, how you coach your players to use footwork to create uh, angles, which makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. uh, could you just sort of uh, go go there for us, if you don't mind? Well, I, I mean, for instance, I mean, you, know, you still get a lot of people where they're talking about, you know, using you know, your right leg, stepping across on the backhand side, using your left leg, stepping across on the right-hand side. And going to the front, they're, yeah, they're, they're using like a, an arc. They, they start on the tee, they run directly towards the front wall, and then they go in an arc towards the side wall. And it's just like, well, I mean, that's not how you move in a game. Like you're running directly at the ball most of the time. So you're doing ghosting. People get told to do these ghosting sessions where they're turning and you know stepping across all the time. I just don't agree with that that movement at all. And so I don't, you know, I make sure that people understand. No, it's about, you know, because you can see, you know, if you've hit a good shot, you can see where someone's going to boast the ball. So why do you need to run towards the middle of the court? Like you should be hedging over to that to the side that the ball's going to be hit on before it's even hit because you know it's going to be a boast. So you're not running in an arc. You're just running onto the ball and getting in you know, the best position you can as quick as you can. Um, one of the things about those sorts of things with footwork, going th especially through the front of the court, most people talk about, you know, lunging and putting their whatever leg they say, you know, right leg or left leg across to hit the ball. Whereas my focus is always about you have to have your back leg in the best position you possibly can to allow your front leg not to step or have to reach for the ball too far. So if you're not getting your back leg up the court far enough and you're always dragging it behind, you end up stretching yourself out more than you need to and you become more of a lazy reacher of the ball. And that is definitely not a good deceptive position to be in when you're lunging and stretching out too far. You can't create the power. You can't use all your body. You can't use your glutes, your, your legs, your abs, all that sort of stuff to try and create the power um, to, to for for a deceptive shot to be hit with 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 intensity. So it's about trying to make sure that your back leg 
is really getting up closer to the ball so your front leg doesn't have to be away from you. you know, I try and keep both feet underneath your body all the time, feet closer together rather than being further apart, um, you know, in the back the same, things like that. So those, those are sort of the fundamental movement things that um, try and get players to understand to do because not only does it give you more balance, uh, better posture when you're at the ball, it gives you more. Um, it, it gives you more control off the ball as well. It's not as demanding on your body pushing off that position. Rather than you know, if you go to the gym and you lunge as far as you can lunge, well, how hard is it to get out of that lunge position? Yeah. Well, exactly. So then, not only are you doing that, but when you're running, how much extra energy, you, you, how much extra force are you creating if you're going to you know run as fast as you can and then stretch out every time you hit the ball as far as you can? I mean, it's just ridiculous to think you're going to do that consistently and you're not going to get tired. Of course you yeah. are. So what would you say then, uh, like, like in terms of, uh, like if I, if I were to go out and do a ghosting session tomorrow, uh, would I, uh, what, what's the mindset in terms of the, the, the type of, like how many steps, what type of footwork should I be focusing on, um, that kind of thing? I mean, I, I, I mean, I try and do a lot of things where, um, you know, you obviously change in feet, you know, you Again, not stretching out at all, really thinking about my feet staying underneath my body all the time so I'm not, not spreading, my, spreading my feet out too far. I want to do it dynamic, so I'm, you know, I'm doing it quickly. I'm not trying to do it in almost, almost like a rhythmical you know, movement all the time. It's got to be sharp and, and, and dynamic. <clears throat> um, and then on top of that, it's got to be um, something that, you know, it mimics a game and, and, and I try not to be too dominant on one leg. So a lot of times I might be using my left leg on the backhand side and my right leg on the forehand side just to even things out all the time and you're not overworking one side of your body or one leg. Um, you know, you, you, you get used to just using and then you become proficient at running at the ball and using both legs to hit the ball, basically, no matter where the ball is. You know, use, use different, uh, my left leg on the backhand side, my right leg on the forehand side just to even things out, not to use one leg more dominant than the other. And because, you know, once you, you, know, you start coaching kids and one of the more difficult things to do is to teach kids how to hit off on the backhand side off their left leg. <clears throat> so, right. which you need to learn how to do that. If you want to be a top class player, you need to be able to, you know, cut the ball off three quarter court, you know, with that left leg, cutting the ball off instead of turning your body around all the time. You need to do little steps like even across for volleys to get in a better position where your body is a bit more open to give you a bit, a, few, you know, a bit more options all the time and even run into the front corners. Sometimes you have to get up there as quick as you can and, and you want to run and just use whatever leg you land on to basically play a little counter drop or a little a fast drop as quick as you can. You don't want to have to be changing legs thinking, oh, I need to get my right leg on the backhand side out there. No, you just need to get up there quickly and be in control, not only play the ball, but get off the ball quick with that left leg sometimes. So... It's yeah. trying to teach, you know, teach, you know, teach yourself that you need to use both feet. You need to be able to do adjust quickly and 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 use both feet. You need to be able to swing, be be powerful and be strong in those positions using both legs. So ghosting should be just all about that sort of stuff, you know. Mm. It sounds sounds like uh, just be economical about about your movement as well, and not sort of yeah. Uh, is there anything else like that that you? tend to focus on with your players uh, more so. Maybe that, that might be unique to your, your coaching style, obviously the footwork uh, patterns and the create the creation of angles because uh, clearly that, that was something that, that you you did very well as a player. Is that well, one of the that things you bring that's different? To, uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's, I suppose it's a mentality of just practice and, 
you know, I've been a practicer that even though I've played, you know, I, I'm a shot player and I used to practice a lot of shots in practice, in a sense, even solo practicing, but, I, and, you know, but I, you don't want to miss. So it's like learning how to practice the right way, what you're practicing on. And there's all different aspects to, you know, say we're working on volleys. Um, the most important thing for me when you're, when I'm, when I'm before a tournament or leading into a tournament or even just developing your volley, you know, I, have you got the ability to square up your racket face to make sure the ball's going to go square, basically straight off the line that you've contacted the ball on with your volley? So when you're doing a simple routine where, you know, you, you see the players do it all the time, where they're, they're one's on, um, on the half-court line, each of them, one's on the left-hand side, one's on the right-hand side, and they're doing, you know, volley drops or they're you know, hitting the ball back to the other person, doing a volley drop or a volley to themselves, then back to the other person, doing a volley to themselves, that sort of thing. So if you're doing that exercise, you know, one of the things I try and teach my players that I always work with, stop, you know, stop trying to hit the ball into the side wall, stop trying to hit a nick. I said, the most important thing about this drill is, are you squaring your racket face up to the angle that the ball's coming on? So if the ball's two foot out from the wall and you strike the ball two feet out from the wall, I want to see the ball go back directly two feet out from the wall and hit the front wall and come back to you that two foot out from the front wall, because that gives you the confidence that you've got the ability to square that racket face up whenever you need to to get the ball straight from that line. And usually, you know, in matches when the ball is getting close to the wall, you need to be able to do that consistently. So you've got the, the confidence of getting that squareness. On, on top of that, it's about, you know, mistakes. It's about, you know, doing a simple routine like that. If you're doing drop volleys, you, you can't make mistakes. It's like not hitting the tin ever. It's like putting in golf. If you go and, you know, you're not going to go out there and practice 20-foot putts and think you're going to sink every one of them. But when you're practicing four or five foot putts, you want to sink every single one of them. So you go out there feeling like you're never going to miss one of those putts on when you go out for a round. The same thing in squash. I mean, I see so many players that just don't even comprehend about whether how many how many how many tins or mistakes they've hit in a practice session. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, working started working with Muhammad um, El Shabagi, and um, you know, to be honest, I couldn't believe when I first started working with him how many mistakes he made in practice. In a super simple routine like that we were doing, just practicing drop volleys and all that sort of, just to want to see his skill, you know, putting the ball short and whatever, made a lot of errors. <clears throat> and I said, listen, you know, I just talked to him about that, saying, listen, we need to start, you know, this mentality of practicing needs to change about we're practicing shots, but we need to practice shots that we never miss. And so you get the confidence that this is going to happen, you know, day in, day out. You're not going to make a mistake. So, you know, I started working with him on that sort of stuff over, the, over you know, three or four weeks. You know, came three weeks or four weeks into working with him or whatever it was, and he said, "Okay, I'm ready. Um, we're going to do this for ten minutes. This drill, and he's going to whack the ball cross court to me. I'm going to do a drop volley. I'm going to whack the ball cross court to him. He's going to do a drop volley. We have to do that for ten minutes. And whoever makes the most mistakes has got to buy dinner." I said, "No problem." <laughs> yeah. So ten minutes went by, and the score was nine zero. Nine he was zero. nine, and I was zero. Wow. And he thought he did unbelievable by making only nine mistakes, and I didn't make one. Wow! So again, it sort of showed and him. He, and that, he wow. was happy. He he was pleased with that performance. Yeah, he he thought he did well, make only making nine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so again, it just shows you the mentality of that sort of practicing about: mm. Are you getting the ball up all the time? Are you playing a good shot? Never never missing. So it just becomes this ingrained like confidence that you have when the ball comes to you. But there's a purpose to all those little drills, you know. As I said, it might be just making sure that you're not – you see a lot of players practice that drop volley routine before they go into tournaments or at tournaments even, 
and they're hitting the ball into the side wall, the ball's you know, coming out in the middle of the court. It's like, well, that's a stroke position every time you hit that shot. So why, why would you want to practice that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's just that mentality about, no, you need to be making sure the ball's going directly straight. And I'm not even focused on when I was practicing like that, things that I practiced when I was you know, getting ready for events and whatever, it wasn't even about hitting the ball in the nick or am I hitting a winner? Like I said, I, I want to do it quickly. I want to do it fast. I want to do it aggressive. But am I hitting the ball directly square from that, that position that I contact the ball? Because that's what I need to be able to have confidence in when I get on court. Am I squaring my racket face up to the target line all the time that I'm trying to hit the ball at? So um, that's, that's the most important thing that, that I tried to work on all the time. And I try and get that across to the players that I work with, whether it be driving, you know, what they're doing with their, you know, the racket head, all those sorts of things about understanding, you know, the technique about, um, you know, the racket head, you have to have control over the racket head. Um, one of the basic fundamentals, I use tennis as an example, because I, I played a lot of tennis when I was younger. My parents were tennis players. And I think that helped me a lot with my volleying in squash. Um, you know, you look at tennis volleying and you look at the way you play the ball. It's more of like a block. You, you're not trying yeah. to hit, swing too big. You're using the pace of the ball to create the shot that you want to play a lot of the times without much but there's a little bit of movement with your body onto the ball in tennis. In squash, you want to be a little bit like that. You want to be you know, using the pace of the ball to create the shot when you want to hit a really accurate you know, shot that you're not swinging too big. The bigger you swing, the more control you, you, know, you have to have and the more, you know, more things can go wrong. So um, not only about how, how to sort of swing smaller and you know, almost like block your volleys uh, when, you go, when there's pace on the ball that you're volleying when you want to go short, but it's about getting your elbow and your hand down as low as possible so if the ball's low and you want to play a drop volley you're not just dropping your racket head down below your hand to try and volley the ball because if you think about tennis in that respect if someone does a top spin over the over the net and you go and volley the ball as low as you know before it hits the ground what do you what do you do with your racket head because it's a bigger ball it's a bigger racket you have to get your hand down low you've got to keep your racket head up to get the control to get back over the net. And it's like that similar thing should be thought about in squash to keep control of the racket head. You see a lot of people dropping their racket head as they're hitting the ball and you, and you see the inconsistency of the strike and where the ball goes, hits the side wall sometimes, doesn't go where they want. So it's about learning you know, fundamental things like that that help you get control over your racket head and, 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 and hit the ball more accurately with a smaller swing, but understanding why you're doing it basically. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, what you said there about uh, sort of limiting uh, your mistakes and playing games, uh, you know, f- just for the amateur player that, that that's listening now, uh, they go out there and they do their, their practice session with their friends, have a game like you, you just uh, mentioned that you had with Mohammed play for a dinner and uh, whoever makes, yeah. uh, mo- whoever hits the most tins in that, uh, you know, whether it's post drive or volley drop or whatever it is, yeah. have to buy the, uh, the dinner. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all those little things like that that, you know, make training, you know, to me, makes, makes it more exciting. It, it, there's a goal every time you go out there, you know, you're, yeah. you're understanding, you know, there's a, there's a certain thing. You might make a lot of mistakes on your boasting to start with, but the more you think about, okay, today I'm going to hit the ball a little higher. I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to hit the tin at all. Start there and then think, right, I'm going to start getting better at keeping the ball lower, making it die, second bounce towards the side wall. I'm going to I'll do all these little things that are going to adjust every week or every day that gets me to play and hit the ball a little bit better, a little bit more accurately without the mistakes. You know, for instance, you know, I talk to Abdullah, you know, when I work with Abdullah El-Tanimi, who is, 
you know, he, he wants to play shots every shot he can, every, every, every shot he hits, he wants to play a winning shot, basically. So when, we, when we're practicing drill type things where we're doing, you know, we might be doing up and down the wall, doing driving or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden he wants, there's a ball that comes out towards the middle of the court and he wants to hit a cross court nick. And I've said, listen, it's your practice session. You choose. If you think you're in a good position, hit, go for the nick, but don't miss. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So like, <laughs> get in position, get, hit the ball the way you want to hit it. If you see a ball that you think you can take advantage of, well, it's going to be like a game. Get in position, get in the best position you can, be aggressive at the ball, but I don't want to see you miss. If you've chosen to hit that shot in practice, then don't miss it. And that's the mentality you've got to try and have to become – you know, a, a, a more consistent player and, and, and not make the unforced errors and, you know, and just be ready to, to play shots that are there to hit, be aggressive, be confident you're not missing. And, and, you know, obviously you do make mistakes, but if you've got that mentality, you'll be surprised how, how, how many more, you know, how many, how many mistakes you don't make if, um, as you go forward and you start practicing that way, basically. Yeah, that's really, that's great stuff. Uh, Rodney. Now, before uh, I know you, it's been an hour here again, and uh, yeah. it seems like the tip of the iceberg uh, once again. Uh, I don't know, but uh, yeah. before you go, I do have to ask you this. I have. Uh, I'm going to make it about me before you go. I do have my club championships uh, coming up in two weeks, and you mentioned four foot putts. You're a scratch golfer. Give me a tip. Give me a tip. <laughs> That's my, my my Achilles well, heel is I'm a, like I'm a five handicap. All right. So and where and where do you, where do you play? Where are you playing? I'm in Dubai. Uh, I'm, I'm well, based yeah. in Dubai. Yeah. Keep keep it out of the sand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll use a Texas wedge out of the sand sometimes, but I'm pretty good yeah. out of the sand. Uh, but uh, the the five foot putts, uh, just limited backswing, limited takeaway. Is that uh, don't be scared to miss. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have like it's just, right? Right. yeah. I mean, you just gotta, you gotta, it's like everything else. It's like, um, if you, when you drive the ball, do you, um, try and hit the ball, you know, as far as you can most times? Yeah. I'm not afraid to swing. Yeah. Yeah. You're not afraid to swing. Same as your iron shots, whatever. Yeah. So that's the way you play the rest of the game. When you get on the putting green, I think you just got to think about it the same way that you just yeah. got to be thinking that it's just, you know, if, you, if you're negative and, and tentative, then you're not going to sink putts. So forget about the one coming back. Okay, exactly. Yeah, okay. Excellent <laughs> tip. Uh, th this, this was absolutely awesome again, uh, Rodney, and I really appreciate uh, your time today. Uh, anything, any parting words for, for, for the listeners out there before uh, we sign off? No, I think it just, uh, yeah, like I said last time, that you know, there's a lot of stuff online. I think that, people can take away probably the way I think about coaching and trying to teach my players that I work with is it is there's always a purpose to the session. There's always a purpose to what we're trying to practice. It's not just a drop shot. It's a drop shot. You hit it in a certain way. It's a volley hit a certain way. Um, the outcome of the shot doesn't necessarily mean you've practiced the right thing. If you're, you know, like I said about squaring your racket face up and things like that, if that's the focus, it's not really about how low you're hitting it to the tin. It's about, is the ball coming off your racket completely square and going exactly down that line again? And that's what you should be focused on. And that's what you take away from certain drills. So I think that's what, um, you know, is the most important thing for people to understand. It's not, it's not about, you know, is the ball hitting the neck or, you know, um, there's, there's a purpose to most things that we do. And the way I, the way I teach is that way. 
absolute gold sir uh, absolutely appreciate right. your time and uh yeah let's let's maybe do it again a little bit yeah. further down the road all right great thanks jerry so what did i tell you that that was absolutely amazing he did not disappoint so much good stuff there and i just want to uh thank rodney for his time uh he was really uh, gracious with with his time and, and for doing it another episode with me uh he was really helpful in terms of uh, helping me prepare make sure that uh, that we got to uh, some of the topics that that were meaningful to him and to me and to the listeners so uh many thanks to rodney and uh many thanks to you for everyone who's listening for the great Great feedback uh, you give on, on the podcast. Please uh, continue to share these. Uh, share it within your squash community. We've got some excellent ones coming up. Where uh, fingers crossed, we're going to have Roy Gingell coming up to talk about the the new officiating website. That's going to be next week. That's something uh, I haven't had I haven't had the opportunity to do is talk officiating for a while. We did have John Mazzarella a, a few episodes back, maybe three four months back, and that was really good. So you might want to go back and listen to that one uh, in the lead up to the Roy Gingell episode. Hopefully, uh, with any luck, that will be coming out in about a week and a half or so. But again, thanks to Rodney Martin. Absolutely enjoyed it. Hero of mine. Hero of many many, many uh, squash uh, players out there. He showed up big today, and I'll definitely be looking to have him back on soon. Maybe next uh, next year we'll have him back on again uh, to talk more about uh, those great times that he that he had on the tour, but also uh, what he's doing with his uh, with his, with the players that he's coaching. And he's got, as you know, uh, through this episode, some great thoughts on the game and on coaching and on technique. It was absolutely amazing. So, anyways, uh, thank you everybody for for listening. Um, you know, if you're not back out on the squash court yet, hopefully it happens soon. If not, hang in there. All the best to you and your families. Goodbye now.